Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Brooke Masters, our Chief Regulation Correspondent, Daniel Schaefer, Investment Banking Correspondent, and Jennifer Thompson, Retail Banking Correspondent. Down the line from Madrid, we have Miles Johnson, our Madrid Correspondent. This week, we'll take a look at transatlantic fighting over bank regulation as the EU warns the US on bank protectionism. We'll discuss the resignation of Alfredo Science, Santander's chief executive, ahead of a decision by Spain's financial regulator over whether a criminal conviction should see him banned from banking. And finally, we'll take a look at the latest blow to the government's reprivatisation agenda for Britain's banks, RBS and Lloyds, as Jim O'Neill, the UKFI's third chief executive in four years, steps down. First, then, to this transatlantic fight over bank regulation. There's always spats cropping up, Brooke, on regulation these days. But there's been a couple of things in the news over the last few days, particularly between Europe and the US. Basically, there have been two separate fights going on. The first one, which got a lot of play, was um, Michel Barnier, who is the EU commissioner who is in charge of the single market, sent a letter to the US saying your rules for foreign banks and their subsidiaries are protectionist. And if you require foreign banks to put more capital in their subsidiaries, we, the EU, will retaliate. Right. That sounds nasty, but I suppose part of a longer running story. So maybe come back to that with Daniel in a second. But there was a second story as well. There's a second story, which is that European banks got a big win as part of the enormous CRD4 legislation that basically turns Basel III into EU law. And deep inside it, there was an exemption put in for over-the-counter derivatives that mean European banks have to hold much less capital against over-the-counter derivatives that they sell to European corporates. This was great news for the European corporates and the European banks. But some U.S. banks are really grouchy about this because, of course, if they sell over-the-counter derivatives to European corporates, they still have to hold more capital. And what happened last week was the European Corporate Treasurers Association, which represents about 6,500 European companies, called out the U.S. banks, singling out SIFMA and J.P. Morgan in particular, saying that they believed that SIFMA and J.P. Morgan, SIFMA is the U.S. industry group, were going to try and get this special rule change undone so that corporates would have to pay more for their derivatives because U.S. banks would be more competitive if everybody had to pay more. Now, this is the Association of Corporate Treasures, which represents the corporate clients of these banks, basically complaining that U.S. bank lobby groups were trying to undo something that was advantageous for, for these companies because it presumably reduces the costs of whatever they want to do with these European banks. Exactly. And they said, you know, this is another instance of banks putting their, their own interests ahead of their clients, and isn't that nasty? Now, to be fair to the U.S. banks, J.P. Morgan and others have argued that, in fact, it's not the exemption they're upset about. It's about the whole rule for the charges. And what they're trying to do is get global harmony at a lower level that would help everyone. But the the corporate treasurers are deeply suspicious of this. And they think basically the U.S. banks want anything that'll make them make money. Right. That's one of the fights. So coming back to the other fight, Daniel, talking of level playing fields, there's an interesting development there. So we've kind of got used to the fight between essentially US banks and European banks over 
rule changes and and wanting to basically get a get ahead get a competitive advantage by having lighter rules in their different jurisdictions but something interesting has happened over this proposal in the US that would have been very penal for banks like Deutsche Bank and Barclays to an extent in terms of holding capital locally in the US what seems to have happened is that the US banks are actually supporting the European banks in in resisting this change? Not all of them are, but actually quite a lot of the even the biggest banks are actually supporting, surprisingly, banks like Deutsche and Barclays. Because you, you would have thought they would be behind the proposal by the Federal Reserve because simply because it would sort of harm the European competitors in that they would have to hold more capital in, exactly. their, in their US subsidiaries. But instead, uh, last week it emerged, a few days after the letter from Mr. Barnier, it emerged that some banks such as JP Morgan, as well as Citigroup, as well as the US trade body that is behind the, the investment banks in the US, have come out in favor of the European banks. And for the very same reasons, as Brooke mentioned on the over-the-counter derivative issue in Europe, the reason being that they're fearing that we'll have regionally different rules, we don't have global harmonization there, and we'll end up having subsidiarization of global banking in the sense that it means that banks will be forced to hold capital in each regional entities, much more capital than they do now, and which would in, in effect destroy the, the, the global banking model in a way. If, if, so if in other words, extreme. yeah, exactly. So, so in other words, they are arguing in favor of global harmony, but they're also trying to fend off the risk of a tit for tat retaliation yeah. by European regulators if US regulators yeah. go too far. And it's actually worse than that, because once you start opening up the door to subsidiarization, there's a real fear that everybody, you know, from the Japanese to the Chinese to everyone will start insisting on local capital. And while you could probably, if you're JP Morgan, who's one of the ones leading the charge, afford you know, to subsidiarize in the EU and in the US, you can't afford to subsidiarize in 35 countries. Yeah. As Daniel says, the whole global model starts to break down. Then. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, we should move on to our next topic for the day. Miles, thanks very much for joining us. This is a kind of surprise piece of news in some ways. This has been a long-running story that the chief executive of Santander has been potentially bannable from banking because of this criminal conviction some time ago. But now it's actually it's happened that he's, he's resigned. Why do you think uh, this has happened now? Well, there's several reasons. I mean, as you say, it's been very long-running. I mean, the case has actually you know, gone back almost two decades since Mr. Sands was... Um, the head of Bonesto, which is in, later became a Santander subsidiary. But um, what the big twist was is that basically back in 2011, when Spain still had a socialist government, one of the last acts of that government was to sort of mysteriously pardon Mr. Sands. As in, the government never really gave an explanation for why they did it, but effectively they overruled a decision by the constitutional court. This sort of was seen as basically burying this problem for Sands and, you know, that he would be able to continue because now he didn't have a criminal record. But then out of nowhere in February, the Supreme Court of Spain partially reversed this decision and said, actually, the government had overstepped his jurisdiction and Sands still would have a criminal record. So this created a really awkward situation for both the Bank of Spain and the government because they were going to have to rule whether he'd be allowed to continue in his role. This has all come now to a head where it looked inevitable, really, this Supreme Court decision, that it was going to have to be upheld by the Bank of Spain, which has final say over this. So I, I guess Mr. Sants just saw the writing on the wall and decided to go gracefully. Well, I think so. I mean, it, it's quite hard to tell exactly if he was pressured by the Bank of Spain or whether he saw the writing on the wall and left before 
Bank of Spain had to take action. But, um, you know, this has created a rather awkward situation for the Bank of Spain. It should be noted as well that the current Spanish government earlier this month actually passed the decree law, as they call them in Spain, which doesn't get voted through by Parliament, it's just sort of passed by decree, that bankers would not only be judged on criminal records, there would also be a softening of this where their sort of professional reputation and history would be taken into account. So they waded into this as well, though obviously they denied it was specifically to do with Sands, but he was the only real figure affected by this. And so, yes, it looks like Sands has seen the writing on the wall and left before having to make the bankers take a very awkward and politicised decision. Obviously it's been a long time coming, but it's finally happened. In some ways, though, I suppose uh, a natural enough evolution at Santander. He's The outgoing chief executive is 70 years old. I think actually he was going to retire some years ago anyway, wasn't he? But now we do have a real generational change. His replacement is a, a guy called Javier Marin, who was until now head of the private bank, I believe. Relatively low-profile figure. Is this really the start of the whole succession process at the bank more widely? Obviously, the chairman, the real holder of power at Santander, remains Emilio Bottin, but and he's 78 now, I think. Are we going to see him going soon as well? Is this, what does this story say about the future of the uh, running of the bank? Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't place any bets on Bottin himself leaving any time soon. I mean, he's always proven to have remarkable longevity. I mean, it is interesting that just in terms of the key, you know, Bottin's role as executive chairman is very much a sort of sort of the broader direction and strategy of the bank and relationships. And whereas, you know, Sands was very much the operational man who, you know, was known to sort of run the bank, you know, with ruthless efficiency by bringing in Javier Marin. You know, he is 46, which in Santander terms is almost he's been barely born. If you look at the rest of the senior figures in the bank, you know, they're all in their late 60s, 70s, most of them, apart from notably Anna Patricia Bottin, Emilio Bottin's daughter. It's an interesting choice because, you know, Javier Marin is not really very well known outside of the bank. Inside the bank, he's quite well known. But he's also been touched by some of the biggest scandals which have hit the bank because by being head of the um, private bank, he obviously was involved in some way with the decision to invest in Madoff, which was a problem for um, Santander at the time. But he served as a direct aide to Emilio Bottin in his younger years, in the 90s. And so, you know, he's a sort of man who clearly has Emilio Bottin's confidence. And Bottin is arguably cementing his own position by appointing Marina. He's too young to threaten Bottin directly. And he also is likely to be completely loyal to him because Bottin was the man who sort of personally brought him up through the bank. You mentioned Anna Bottin, who is currently head of the UK business. She'd been widely seen as a potential successor to her father as chairman. As you say, the appointment of Javier Marin maybe extends his tenure as chairman. But what does it say, or if anything, uh, about the likelihood that she will be elevated at some point? The relative power of these individuals who are in the running is sort of fluid and changes over the years. And I think, you know, Anna Patricia Bottin, but just by the fact of, you know, being a Bottin is clearly still seen as a front runner. But this creates a rival who is, you know, of a vaguely similar age to her, who will now have the legitimizing experience to take the reins at Santander. So I think it is clearly a big threat to her. But I don't think she would have ever been a likely successor to Mr. Sands. You know, that would have been a completely untenable situation to have Emilio Bottin as chairman and his daughter as chief executive. So I don't think we can write off Anna Patricia Bottin just yet, but it certainly makes things more complicated for her maybe in the longer term. Okay, Miles, thank you very much for joining us. 
Our final topic for the day is the resignation of the head of UK financial investments. Now, this is the body that runs the UK government's stakes in the UK banks, notably the 82% stake in Royal Bank of Scotland and the 39% stake in Lloyd's. Last week, Jim O'Neill, who heads the UKFI, tendered his resignation, said he was going to be leaving in September, and in a move really generally seen as being pretty unhelpful for the government's reprivatisation agenda for these banks. How unhelpful was it, Jenny, do you think? In itself, it probably doesn't make much difference. I mean, the signal it sends is that the government isn't going to be ready to reprivatise the stakes in Lloyds and RBS in the coming months, because obviously by the time Mr O'Neill leaves and his replacement is found, you know, you're talking, say, at least six months and then a bit of time to settle into the job. So it's basically a confirmation that we're looking at a mid-term horizon for the privatisation of these shares. That was the news on the day. Obviously, you know, there has been a little bit more on RBS and Lloyds recently and a bit of chatter about whether there could be a share giveaway. But the communication from those banks themselves and actually, obviously, the share price as well has indicated we're probably looking at reprivatisations if you're going to get the actual government in price in perhaps a couple of years time. So fundamentally, it probably doesn't cloud the picture. But sure, it's not sort of a great positive signal that uh, anything big is about to happen on that front from the Treasury's point of view. One of the interesting things that emerged when we were reporting about this move was that UKFI has been engaged latterly in weighing up a potentially fairly dramatic restructuring of Royal Bank of Scotland. This comes in the wake of suggestions by Lord Lawson, Sir Mervyn King, the Governor of the Bank of England, and the Archbishop of Canterbury, basically alluding to RBS being ripe for this kind of dramatic restructuring, either into smaller regional banks or into a good bank, bad bank. And seemingly one of the things that UKFI has been doing latterly has been to look at the merits of that argument. Do you think that's likely to go anywhere? And with Jim O'Neill's departure, is it more or less likely to happen in reality? I mean, is it possible to say? It is virtually impossible to say at the moment. I mean, clearly, if it is going to be broken up, now would be the time to do it when RBS is sort of, you know, has made a lot of progress, but they're, they're sort of not quite out of the woods yet. I mean, the counter argument to that would be, of course, that the bank to some extent already has been, been broken up. I mean, it's a question of semantics, but they've got this non-core division, as has Lloyd's, where a lot of the, the riskier lending, so the uh, the subprime, the, um, you know, the commercial real estate, that's been put in, into that, that those non-core brackets and that's obviously being wound down or being sold off on portfolio so it begs the question really if you broke up RBS what exactly would you be breaking up into what and of course the banks themselves would argue well you know if you're looking for value for the taxpayer which is what the fundamental argument's all about you know you'd have the extra outlay of of things like you know head office and staffing costs the next leg of, of the story and whether that is likely is going to be the banking commission's report next month of course Nigel Lawson and Justin Welby sit on that commission. They've been vocal supporters of breaking up the bank. So it'll be interesting to see if they make any recommendations on that front to George Osborne next month. Yeah, I think that will be fairly significant in terms of deciding RBS's fate. Clearly, it's something any dramatic restructuring would be likely to delay any timetable for for reprivatisation as well. And maybe unsettled management, I guess, in the form of the Stephen Hester tenure at the helm of RBS. We should finish there. All that's left for me to do is to thank Brooke, 
Daniel and Jennifer and Miles down the line from Madrid for their contributions and to thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Katie Carney. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.